0: Welcome to another episode of Something Rhymes With Purple. This is our 80th episode. If you're new to the show, it's a celebration of words and language. And we've been very lucky. We've had, well, several million downloads, which is fantastic. We've won an award as Best Entertainment Podcast of 2020. And from our point of view, the happiest thing about it is that around the world, we have people who tune in on a weekly basis to enjoy our enjoyment of of the English language, the richest language in the world. And we can do it because I'm a word enthusiast, but I have with me a fellow word enthusiast who is also our leading lexicographer, a woman who understands words completely and knows more about the English language, I believe, than any other person on the planet. She is Susie Dent.
1: Hello. I'm sorry if I sniggered in the middle of that introduction, but my stomach decided to have a say as well. So did you hear the borborygmus?
0: What's that? What's the word? Borborygmus. Yes, That's a little a little sort of tummy, oh,
1: it's tummy more, That was quite a loud gurgle for those who picked it up. Um, yes. People are extraordinary though.
0: And now women seem to be able to do this sort of thing. Have a borborygmus. I've been making a television series with a lovely actress called Sheila Hancock. Oh, yes. And it's a series, I think, that goes out in the UK in November, December, but I I think he's going to be seen internationally. We travel together on canals. And uh, Sheila is a remarkable person in so many ways. She's an actress, an entertainer, a scholar, a polemicist, but she also is a Belcher, a Berber. Uh Um, And she's 87 and we have lunch together and she then sits back and issues in a public place a sort of loud belch. Yes. I say this is not acceptable. She says it is totally acceptable. I say I don't think it is.
1: No, I'm with you. I'm with you. But do you know what? I think... It's a bit of a class thing because I might be completely wrong about this, but as I was growing up, it was always the really posh people, if I ever met them, who thought it was perfectly okay to sit back and, um, and and yes, hold forth um, from their stomach.
0: Whereas the middle classes like you and me. We're just we a think, bit
1: more kind of, you know, yeah. holding on to our, right. and I- our napkins and all that stuff.
0: Maybe it's a sense of entitlement. Must I can be. do what I like. I can burp. I can belch. What was the word you used to describe your tummy rumble? Oh, borborygmus. What's the origin of that?
1: Um, I actually should know this straight off. I think it's probably Latin via Greek, but I'm going to look it up for you. I've used it loads and I've never actually wow. interrogated. it. That's why I love this podcast, because... It actually gets me doing, looking things up that I should have known a long time ago. Yes, modern Latin from the Greek, borborugmus. It's defined in some dictionary as a rumbling noise in the bowels. Well, I can assure you that wasn't my bowels, that was definitely my upper intestine.
0: (laughs) Thank you very much for sharing that. Well, Last week, you introduced me to a, a modern phrase, spilling the tea. Yes. Uh, young people are saying that to show they've got gossip. Spill the tea. Give us the goss. Yes. And the week before, one of your trio was Thermopot, mm. who, somebody who's a lover of hot drinks, mm. which I think we both are. Yeah. But if you, if you want to have a goss, if you want to spill the tea over a Thermopot, I like to have a biscuit to hand to dunk into my brew. Mm. What's the origin of the word dunk? And then let's get down to biscuit business.
1: Okay. So the origin of the word dunk. (laughs) Thanks for asking me something I didn't know. Is the very first thing. Um, No, but it's good because
0: people think, oh, yeah, she spent hours mugging it all up. She hasn't. I don't. We just get together once a week for an informal chat. And if she knows it, she knows it. And if she doesn't, she's got access to a dictionary. I do. Tell me.
1: Oh, this is lovely. It's um, American English, but it's from Pennsylvania German. Massive German community there. And it's from Dunker to dip, which is in the middle high German, Duncan, which I should know, uh, given that I'm a Germanist, but I didn't. And so the idea in basketball of jumping up and pushing the ball down through the basket is similar to the action of dipping something into a hot liquid.
0: Great. Hmm. Well, if you're listening in Philly, Philadelphia, if you're listening in Pennsylvania, we love your language and we're grateful to the word dunking. I adore biscuits, Susie Dent.
1: I know. I see your t- tweets. Where you're always showing your breakfast. Well, I've discovered what
0: people like when I tweet. They like cakes and cats, most of all, but I also tweet my breakfast. Mm -hmm. And if I come across a lovely biscuit, I tweet that as well. Mm. What is, well, first of all, we're calling it a biscuit. Mm. Globally, is that the right thing? Is a biscuit the same thing as a cookie?
1: Um, biscuit for us in Britain is the same as a cookie, but biscuit in other places means something quite different. So in the United States, I think a biscuit is more of a kind of like a scone, isn't it? I think our, our American oh, really? listeners will soon get onto to us. I to thought in
0: America exactly. a scone was like a muffin. It's all quite confusing.
1: It is quite confusing. Yeah. Um, wherever you are using the word biscuit, you can at least be sure of the etymology, which is from the Latin biscoctum, which meant twice baked. And that went into French as biscuit.
0: As in the French, bis meaning twice and cuit meaning cooked. Yes,
1: twice cooked. So this was because it was, first of all, it was. Cooked once, and then in order to harden the biscuit mixture, it was cooked for a long time in a slow oven. So it was twice cooked, at least the the early biscuits were twice cooked. I don't know if they still are.
0: But the Americans, when they talk about what we would call a biscuit, uh, talk about cookies. Yes. And of course, we have cookies. I mean, a cookie is a a version of the word cook, I suppose. Absolutely.
1: Yes. Simple as that. We, of course, have cookies now as well because our culture is quite often influenced by North America, often in a very good way. And um, the cookies have arrived here. Cookies for us are usually either quite large or just, you know, the perfect kind of chocolate chip American type biscuit that you would imagine.
0: Though a fortune cookie, which comes from oh. China, is a different phenomenon altogether, isn't it? It is.
1: Yes, fortune cookies, I, I mean, they are sort of biscuity, aren't they? Or maybe wafer, wafer. I think
0: they're more like wafery crackers in a sense. You But you open them and it's got a little message inside. Yes. Saying tomorrow's another day. Yes. Or ask not for whom the bell tolls. Or mine's a number 33. Do you remember when you used to go to Chinese restaurants and you ordered by the number? I don't know if yes. this is, applies worldwide, but there used to be Chinese restaurants where the, the dishes were described. There was a long description. Sometimes on the on the opposite page, it was in Chinese lettering. Yeah. And you ordered, you you said, I'll have a a number three and a number 17, and then we'll have two number 42s. That doesn't happen anymore, does it?
1: No, it's funny, isn't it? And maybe it was our way of avoiding the beautiful Chinese names for things because we couldn't quite get our tongues around them. As you know, that happens quite a lot in English. I've just looked up fortune cookie, and apparently they were invented in 1918 by a Chinese immigrant to America who established the Hong Kong Noodle Company. And they handed out cookies with uplifting messages, but it was all part of a PR stunt.
0: I love you. And I think I want to talk about biscuits, but you mentioned the word noodle. Mm. I adore the word noodle. It's almost top of my list of favourite words. A noodle is your head, a noodle is something you eat. What's the origin of the word noodle?
1: Noodle, it's Germanic, as you would expect. Um, So in German, you can call someone a noodle which I love, which means noodle head. So for us, that would be a bit of a tautology. But ultimately, it might go back to the Latin nodulus. Which is a kind of nodule, but the idea really is it's the, the head or the back of the head. And noodle Thatcher in the eighteenth century was old slang for a wig maker, which is great. And we mustn't Thatcher.
0: get sidetracked because no. I want to go now. I'd love to go. We'll have to do a whole episode on pasta. On noodles. I want to know about spaghetti. and oh, Where that comes from? As pasta well as shapes.
1: Yes, let's yep. do that.
0: But, but but let's concentrate on this. Mm. What about crackers?
1: Crackers simply crack. I think um, when oh, you, you so know. they are
0: biscuits. They yeah, are, but it's usually of a savoury nature, yes. I think.
1: Yes, they are. So they
0: get cream uh, cream crackers. Yes. I like a cream cracker myself, one of those square cream crackers. I, I like to crack a cracker. Mm-hmm. Wafer.
1: Wafer is related to waffle and goes back to, we changed the... G of the French gouffre, which in, I think in turn goes back to the Dutch word, beginning with G as well. Uh, we changed that to a, a W, but I think ultimately it goes back to a root meaning honeycomb. Mm. Hmm. That's nice. Yeah.
0: People used to have ice cream served in wafers, didn't they?
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes.
0: I liked that. Oh, a
1: Nickerbocker Glory. I haven't had one well, of those But that doesn't ages. have a wafer. Oh, well, mine always did. A wafer? Yeah, no, you didn't cool.
0: have a Nickerbocker Glory with a wafer?
1: Yes, Glace Cherries and a wafer on top. Oh, was okay. there a wafer on top? I, well, maybe, maybe anywhere I went.
0: I think a knickerbocker glory for me is in a long glass, mm. like a huge champagne flute, as it were, a glass yeah. that gets bigger towards the top, and it's a variety of ice creams inside, possibly topped off with a glacé cherry. I do not remember the wafer. Oh. The wafer for me mm. was between a slab. You had two wafers and a bit of ice cream yes. in
1: between. Like a butterfly wings. Yeah, I think you still get those. I quite like Well, that. possibly not in COVID times, but yes. No.
0: Speaking of communion wafers, I had an extraordinary experience this week. Mm. You've heard of Jane Austen. Yes. The great English novelist. Yes. World famous. Her father was a clergyman. Yes. The Reverend George Austen. I, this week, was in a beautiful church where he was the rector for more than 40 years. Mm. And they showed me uh, the chalice and the plate that contained the wafers that, that he served communion from. Wow. And so I handled this plate that would have been handled by Jane Austen when she took communion.
1: How fantastic. Isn't
0: that amazing? Yeah. I love that. Anyway, that's just a tangible an aside. history. Yes. It is I love tangible history. Me too. And this is edible history mm-hmm. of language. Biscuits, cookies, crackers, wafers. Let's talk about some of the brands or yes. the individual biscuits. And some of these will be familiar to people in the UK, less familiar internationally, but we'll we'll come to Gary Baldi and his biscuits from Italy in due course. Let's start with British biscuits. Mm. Do you have a favourite one?
1: Now, asking someone what their favourite biscuit is, a little bit like asking them what their favourite word is, because you can be there for hours. But I think if I had to choose, and it would have to be with a cup of tea, is may surprise you, it would be a rich tea biscuit, because I have been known oh. quite frequently to dunk an entire packet of rich tea biscuits into a single mug and eat the whole lot. And we're talking 30 or 40, yes. Oh, they just Mm – they are the most dunkable – biscuits in the world. Was this a very
0: troubled time in your life? 13, no, no, 40 I can still, I can easily been... do
1: that now. Um, really? Mm.
0: We're, we're not recommending you try this at home. Even those of you who are the most demented dent followers do not, <laughs> not dunk an entire packet <laughs> Why not? of rich they tea biscuits. Why are they called rich? Was it, was it, a, is it like the Mars bar? Was there actually someone called Mr. Rich? No. Who had a company that made biscuits?
1: They were originally called tea biscuits and they were developed in the 17th century in Yorkshire. And they were intended for the upper classes as a light snack between their full course meals, and then yeah, I don't know why the rich was added on. Maybe they were for the rich, or maybe they thought they were you know particularly. Well, I think
0: it gives the impression rich. they are enriched. There's something so luxurious. Yes, I'm a luxury.
1: If you well, can in fact, afford. they're as simple as you can get. Do not give me a rich tea biscuit without a cup of tea, though, because they're very bland. But in a cup of tea, they transcend. I am afraid all other biscuits. What's your favourite?
0: A chocolate Oliver,
1: a oh. chocolate Oliver is a
0: bath Oliver mm. covered in a thick coating of dark mm. chocolate. Now, tell us about bath Olivers. These are very famous biscuits in the United Kingdom, and I think in luxury uh, places around the world, they still serve a bath Oliver.
1: Yes, What's the so. They, a bit like digestives in a way, they were thought to be curative. So digestives were sold by Huntley and Palmers of Reading um, in England. They were sold as an aid for digestion and they were prominent in ads um, for the Cunard steamships. And the idea was probably that if you were were wealthy enough to go on a steamship cruise, you were likely to eat incredibly rich food that would need a digestive aid or antacid at the end of it, hence digestives. And Bath Oliver similarly were thought to be kind of medial so they were intended for those suffering the effects of a really rich diet oliver because they were invented by a william oliver and he was a physician um, from bath who apparently treated people who were a little bit bilious and quite rich with it so they could afford to go and see him and then afford a rich diet for which they then needed the oliver antidote if that makes sense
0: If you've not been, if you are one of our international listeners in Dubai or wherever you happen to be, come to Bath. It's the most beautiful city in the west of England, famous for its spa. Mm. And 200 years ago or more, people would go there to take the cure, wouldn't they? To take the waters, to both drink the waters, swim in the waters. And there were lots of doctors, some legitimate, some more of the quack variety. And they would have cures of different kinds for things like biliousness, the gout, um, hypochondria. Mm. That's the one I've got most of. Um, and Dr. Oliver was one of those. Yeah. So the chocolate Oliver is my favourite biscuit based on the Bath Oliver, created by Dr. Oliver in Bath. You mentioned Reading and the firm of Huntley and Palmer. Mm. They had a biscuit factory in Reading for many, many years. And this happens to be, this week happens to be the anniversary of the birth of Oscar Wilde, mm-hmm. the great Irish playwright and poet, born on the 16th of October. And he was a remarkable person, and you may know he was imprisoned in Reading Jail. Yeah. And one of the visitors to Reading Jail was Mr. Palmer of Huntley ah, and Palmer. Maybe. And the Palmers were good friends to Oscar Wilde and his wife Constance. Hmm. Are they ever known as Readings? Do you get Reading biscuits? No. I don't think
1: so. You no. get digestive
0: biscuits. Did they pioneer the digestive biscuit? Yeah, so mouth? they gave
1: us the digestives. Another. One, I didn't think she came from um, from Reading. In fact, probably as far away from Reading as you could possibly get, which is the the niece biscuit. So niece biscuits are ones they're quite sugary, aren't they? Kids love them. I thought they were called nice biscuits because they're delicious. That's it. So they've got N I C E written on them, and depending what you know, how you think of them, they can either be nice or nice. But I think the company wants us to think that they're a niece. The Hull Daily Mail, apparently in 1929, carried an ad for Huntley and Palmer's Nice Biscuits, um, using the phrase "delightful as the town after which they are named." So whether or not they thought of nice right from the start or suddenly did a, oh hey nice could be nice i'm not sure but anyway uh, i oh, think nice is the official like pronunciation Yeah,
0: nice is the official pronunciation i love a nice biscuit they are very sugary but i that's a, a favorite dunking
1: one uh, wonderful yeah. yeah what about the the shrewsbury or the shrewsbury Gosh, I don't know about that one, actually. Shrewsbury are the ones with currants in, aren't they? And they're really yep. nice and they're also quite sugary and they're sort of slightly mm. fan-tailed. I
0: think they're called Shrewsburys. And mm. the, the, Not Shrewsbury's again, okay. if you're international, you won't know. This is a great debate about the pronunciation of the town of Shrewsbury. Mm. And again, it's a, it's in the west of England and it's a brilliant town. There's a school there, a famous old school, which definitely calls itself Shrewsbury. But the people who live in the town mostly call themselves Shrewsbury, Sh- Shrewsbury people. So I think the biscuit is called a Shrewsbury.
1: I'm just looking it up here because there is this, is, this isn't this a piece from Shrewsbury School, which say Shrewsbury or Shrewsbury biscuits have a long history and can trace their origins back to the 1600s. So they're almost as old as the school itself. First included in a recipe book in 1658, apparently. So incredibly old. Have you ever performed at the Severn Theatre in Shrewsbury? I have. It's beautiful, isn't it? It is beautiful. Susie and I, uh,
0: in happier times, we have separate shows and occasionally, because they are going to be some live, oh, by the way, there are going to be some live shows of, of Something rides with the Purple. Oh, I hope so. It's exciting, isn't it? Yes. And we might go. That might be the theatre oh, we go be to, because really nice, we've done yeah. our live show at the Seventh Theatre in Shrewsbury. And what I do to keep everybody happy there, in the first half of my show, hmm. I call the town Shrewsbury, <laughs> and the second half, I call it Shrewsbury. Oh, I love that. My wife says, you're so pathetic, Giles. You so want to be loved. You want to upset anybody. That's why you do that. I said, no, I'm trying to be fair, but I think she knows me quite well. (laughs) Look, let's take a quick tea break. And then I want to discuss Hobnobs, Gary Baldis. And I want to know about the Jaffa cake. Is it a cake or is it a biscuit? Mm. Back in a moment. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. We are spilling the tea here, having the goss and uh, dipping our biscuits into, cause into our favorite thermopot. Um, <laughs> tell me, let's get, let's cut to the chase. The Jaffa cake. Mm. Is it a biscuit? Is it a cake? Does it come from Jaffa?
1: Does it come from Jaffa? Well, it was named after the Jaffa orange because, of course, the Jaffa cake, for those who don't know, is a... Gosh, how do we describe this? It's kind of spongy with chocolate and it has an orange filling. So the orange filling gave it its name after the Jaffa orange. And in the early 90s, there was a tribunal in Britain which was to decide whether or not Jaffa cake could be taxed as a cake. Um, and the idea is that when stale, cakes go hard and biscuits go soft and Jaffa cakes, I think, go hard. So the Jaffa cake is a cake, not a biscuit. And I think that made all the difference to the VAT. If I got that right?
0: I think you have got that I, right. Okay. You're on the money. <laughs> hobnob. I love uh, a hobnob.
1: Yes. Hobnob goes back to, I mean, the idea of hobnobbing as well, which is kind of, not just mixing with people, but there's a sense of social climbing in there as well, or oh, she's hobnobbing with the royals or whatever. That goes back to quite a nice drinking toast, actually, from centuries ago, where you would say hab or nab, and that meant to have or to have not. So I think it was more like, come what may, cheers, you know, to whatever comes. To hab or nab became hob or nob," and eventually you got the idea of drinking toasts, presumably with people that you wanted to suck up to and they get the idea of hobnobbing but the biscuits certainly they would want you know the, the sort of old sense of conviviality to be the one that, that you remember. Chocolate hobnobs I think regularly voted as Britain's favorite biscuit.
0: Goodness mm. well if you've got a favorite biscuit do let us know if your country has a favorite biscuit because we do have an international audience it's purple at com. that's where you write to us something without a G. Gary Baldy. Mm. We know he was a real dude. Yes. And what's the biscuit like, and why is it called a Gary Baldi?
1: Well, to anyone who used to love Gary Baldis when they were little, this includes me. We used to call them dead fly biscuits. Do you remember? Did you ever I call them remember. dead fly
0: biscuits? I, that's exactly what we call them
1: because that's exactly what they look like. They look like they have got lots of squashed flies in them. Essentially, named after Gary Baldy. He was a general, wasn't he? Giuseppe Garibaldi. Nothing to do with the fact that he used to like eating them. Um, It was just simply in honour of him. And apparently a beard, a cocktail and also a rugby trophy um, have also been named after Garibaldi. So not just the biscuits.
0: He was a great and controversial Italian leader, Mm. quite a controversial figure um, at the beginning of the 20th century. So I don't know why it's called a Galibord, it? Do you?
1: Well, no, I think it was just an uh, honouring, a sort of contemporary tribute, if you like, because oh. Bourbon biscuits, which are lovely, kind of like a chocolate biscuit sandwich with a kind of lovely mm. soft chocolate filling, that was perhaps chosen as just because it sounded quite regal, but it was named after the House of Bourbon, who you know provided the kings of France for a very long time. So I think they were quite often, as they say, contemporary. Tributes. Penguins are lovely. Now, I would love to think that penguins have crossed the world. In Britain, as I was growing up, and Giles, you'll remember this, the ad that we all remember for Penguin Biscuits was pick up a penguin. And there was a great tune, which I won't sing. And they were apparently, now I have to thank Lawrence, our producer, for this because I had no idea. They're named after the penguins gifted to Edinburgh Zoo in the early 20th century. Well,
0: that's nice.
1: And, oh, uh, here we go. He also says the Australian Tim Tams... Named after a successful racehorse, were are based on the penguin. So in Australia, they're chimtams.
0: Penguins are Tim Tams in Australia. Mm. How wonderful. Yeah. What about the Jammy Dodger from our childhood?
1: Oh, Jammy Dodger. Well, these were named after, well, obviously they've got a jam filling, but they were named after Roger the Dodger, who was a character in the Beano comic, um, which was probably your generation, wasn't it, Giles? I I love the Beano, the
0: Dandy, the Beezer, the Hornet, all those (laughs) comics from the 1950s published by DC Thompson in Dundee. Yeah. I loved it. Oh. And Jammy Dodger comes from there. Yes. One of the characters
1: in that. Roger the Dodger. He was always Roger the Dodger. Things. Enjoyed
0: mm. a Jammy Dodger. Yeah. Well done.
1: And also it has to be said that some of the most successful biscuit names do use the rule of ablaut reduplication that I mentioned ages ago, which sounds so boring, but it accounts for the fact that we will never wear flop flips or bells will never go dong ding. Oh. And similarly, we will never eat a cat kit. We will always eat a kit cat. And those words that have a kind of twin element to them, a bit like a Twix biscuit, in fact, but kit, cat, hobnob, etc., they seem to be especially successful as names for biscuits.
0: Ablaut reduplication. Yes.
1: I mean, it's an unspoken, unconscious rule that we all have. So you will have a a chit-chat, not a chat-chit, and clocks will go tick-tock, not tock-tick. Um, and and wheel,
0: wheels will go wagon wheel, not wheel wagon. <laughs>
1: wagon wheel. Do you remember a wagon wheel? Wagon wheels. I loved. Wagon wheels are huge. biscuit's that's probably why I like them, which have, they've got all sorts of things going on in them, haven't they? They've got a kind of biscuit. They're chewy. They've got some sort of white stuff going on in them as well. <laughs>
0: They have got some yeah
1: yeah. Um have. and yes, so named because apparently they look like the wheels of wild western wagons. They're all marketing ploys, obviously. And um yeah, clearly very successful ones.
0: Let's go global. The Florentine. I like a Florentine, which is a little kind of biscuit with chocolate on and little things on top of that. Mm. That I suppose comes from Florence. From maybe?
1: Florence. Exactly. You've got the Shrewsbury biscuit or the Shrewsbury, you've got Florentine. You have got oh Leibniz. Named after Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, who is from Hamburg, as are the biscuits. He was, I'm just reminding myself of this now because my history is terrible. He was a prominent German polymath and one of the most important logicians, mathematicians and natural philosophers of the Enlightenment. There you go. Very
0: good. (laughs) And there's a Leibniz biscuit. I don't, I'm not familiar with that. I am familiar with the Amaretti biscuit. Yeah. Uh, and I and it used to be in my drinking days they said ser- there was a certain drink that they served you mm. in an Italian restaurant and it always came with an amaretti. Mm. But I never liked the amaretti. There must be something on it like almonds that didn't, wasn't to my liking.
1: Yes. They are actually quite almondy, aren't they? Um they it simply translates as little bitter ones. But amaretti, I don't think are that bitter i wonder if it's because they went with you know bitter coffee or whatever but yes you're i mean there's amaretto as well isn't there which is the almond flavored liqueur oh i know it must be a reference to bitter almonds i think that's that's uh, where we're getting it from
0: what about macaroons They they also serve you. In restaurants, I don't like it when they bring the coffee. Hmm. And I don't want an amaretti biscuit, thank you very much. Nor do I want a macaroon. I want a proper chocolate, maybe a truffle. I don't mind a little square of dark black chocolate wrapped in some gold wrapping. I quite like that. I do not want a macaroon.
1: Mm, I'm with you. Although the modern macaroons have got this lovely filling in them and that you have to refrigerate. They are very good. They're quite chewy and quite different. Um, what Do you know, I'm going to take you right back now. Do you remember a song which was Yankee Doodle went to town riding on his pony, stuck a feather in his hat and called it macaroni? Of course. So this was basically reflecting the English view of Americans who, it's not very nice. They were still under British rule, I guess, colonial rule. And so they were seen as hicks. Lacking sophistication, and macaroni was a name for a dandy, and. Macaroni, the pasta dish was thought as being quite exotic in that time. And so the macaronis who were young men who had travelled abroad and liked to think of themselves as being incredibly exotic because they wore these continental fashions, you know, they were seen as fops by the British, but thought a lot of themselves. That's the idea, obviously, very disparaging at the time. But macaroon, just to get to the point, is linked to macaroni. And again, they were seen as these kind of exotic foods so it, it's quite interesting macaroon itself and macaroni goes back all the way to greek meaning food made from barley i think but it's all because of these macaroni fops who ate the macaroni pasta and dressed like dandies that's a very long story isn't it
0: it's a good story let me tell you my macaroon story okay macaroons are often served wrapped in light tissue paper can you picture it yes And people sometimes flatten the tissue paper, take out the macaroon and flatten the tissue paper. And if you light the corners of the tissue paper, Mm. they float upwards. Have you seen people do that? Yes, I have. I was speaking at a very grand dinner, attended, I think, by, let me get this right, the finance minister of Singapore, who was a very significant figure who came with a lot of guards. It was a very grand dinner at a hotel in central London. And it was quite a long evening. And at one of the tables were some young bankers. Mm. And they got these macaroons, they removed the macaroon, and they flattened the paper, and they lit the corners. And they this is a kind of competition. And so we had floating to the ceiling, these burning bits of macaroon tissue, which, wait for it, set off (gasps) the water. Exactly. The fire alarms, the water shoots. The room was suddenly flooded with water. Oh, no. And you often go to a place and you see up there, if you look at the ceiling, you'll see the spouts that the water's going to come out of. I assumed it would be a gentle trickle of water. It's like being in a shower. (laughs) The whole room was suddenly flooded. All these ladies in their finery, the men in their black ties, the finance minister of Singapore with the security. All because of the macaroon wrappers. It was the macaroon wrappers that set the sprinklers going. (gasps) So whatever you do, don't light your macaroon wrapper. Just take it off, screw it into a little ball and put it in the bin.
1: I've never told you one of my first date stories, which I will come to another time or tell you off air. But essentially I set my hair alight.
0: (laughs) Oh no, (laughs) come on. You can't tease us. That that's I'm sorry, we're (laughs) spitting the tea here. We're spitting the tea here. Have you got the the receipts? Can you show us some pictures? <laughs> tell us what Luckily happened. Not. It was, I was going to say it was a long time ago.
1: It was uh, a long I time de- ago. And Tell I, us
0: about that first date. What happened?
1: Okay, so I was in a restaurant. I had been very nervous about these dates. I hadn't really eaten very much. And I was one glass of wine in, okay, went straight to my head. It was probably getting a little bit giggly. And there were some candles on the table. And probably in my sort of nervousness, I was flicking my hair about and I accidentally flicked it into the candle at which point i heard this and i don't know if you've ever smelt burned hair giles but it is the worst smell in the world so i quickly put the hair out that was okay not in the wine i had some water so it wasn't too awful but the smell permeated the restaurant so much that they evacuated it
0: good grief. yes well that was a date you wouldn't forget What happened to the relationship?
1: (laughs) Um, Yes, unsurprisingly, it didn't go much further than that. I'm wondering if I'm inventing the evacuation at the end. I may be, but I know certainly there was, was real disgust at the smell that was wafting around.
0: This is what happens with stories, Uh, uh, remembered in retrospect. I've recently published a a book called The Oxford Book of Theatrical Anecdotes, Uh, which is theatre stories. Yeah, And indeed, towards Christmas, we might talk of theatre stories. There's some good, funny theatre stories. But one of the stories I wanted to put in the book was one that I couldn't work out whether it was true or not. It concerned an actor called Peter Wingard, who was a great matinee idol in Britain, In the 1950s and 60s and early 70s, very good looking, dark haired, uh, handsome, bit of a macaroni. Mm. And Peter Wingard appeared in the play Cyrano de Bergerac Mm -hmm. by Edmond Rostand. He appeared in the Bristol Old Vic, very celebrated. And one scene, he's running across the stage holding a lit candle. And it was a lit candle. And unfortunately, the lit candle set fire to his hair. <gasps> Same thing. And yes. And so his hair was ablaze and he was running around the stage trying to put out <laughs> the blaze on his head. And eventually, because he couldn't put it out, he pulled off his wig and he revealed to the world that he was in fact a bald man. <gasps> wow. This handsome matinee idol was bald. That's now, okay. a great story.
1: Bald man can be attractive.
0: It can be attractive, but he, as it were, sold himself as a dark-haired man. Now, (sighs) the point of the story is it's a good story. But somebody said to me, when he played Serrano de Bergerac, he was a young man. He still had hair. Oh. This can't have happened. Oh, So that's the problem with an anecdote. Yes. So you can't remember when the...
1: When I the, can't the, whether... remember, to be honest, but I, do, I genuinely do remember the fact that a lot of people were looking around trying to locate the source of the smell because, yes, burnt hair, Just you just Good. do not well, want Well, if
0: you want to spill the tea, listeners, and share with us your most embarrassing moment <laughs> at the time you set light to your hair or indeed tell us tales of your first date, give it a linguistic twist. That'll justify us bringing it up on Something Rhymes With Purple, you can tweet us or email us at purple at com. Who's been in touch this week?
1: Yes, I just have to say, we haven't even mentioned Oreos, which um, which I love, the Oreo cookies, which nobody knows the origin of this. But one theory is it goes back to Oreo Daphne, which is a plant in the laurel family, because there was a laurel design on it originally. And then there's the Snickerdoodle in the US as well, which is just such a brilliant name.
0: What's the origin of Snickerdoodle? Is it to do with Snickers?
1: I think German, um, some people say it goes back to um, Schneckennudel, which is a German, I think meaning a simpleton. I'm not sure. Not sure what Schneckennudel is actually. Schnecken in Germany are absolutely gorgeous. They're a bit like pano raisin, those raisin round croissant that you have. When I worked in Germany, I would have quite often three or four Schnecken a day. There you go.
0: Can we do a pasta and cakes episode? I want to talk about the origin of all those pasta names. And I just want yes. an excuse to talk about cake and Let's. eat it.
1: Um, if anyone now, can hear lots of tip, tip tip tapping on my end of the podcast, by the way, that is the rain. It is raining incredibly heavily here and dropping from the eaves. It's the original eavesdrop outside my little study. Right. A correspondence, stroppy from Lucy Eaton. She asks, Lucy asks, while taking an online barbering course, she came across the term stropping razors. And this led me to wonder if this is linked to the term stroppy or throwing a strop. Where does it come from? I've never heard of stropping razors ever. I have. Have you? What I was mean? confused
0: by her email. Because when I first read it, I got really excited. I thought, oh, this is going to be about Baba the elephant. I adore Baba, <laughs> but it's barbering. She has been learning barbering, how yeah. to cut hair. Yeah. And I think barbering is usually men's hair, isn't it? Yes. Hair dressing, it would be for women. And it's usually you go to the barber for, anyway. Yeah. Uh, Lucy's been taking this barbering course. Yes. The strop is the bit of leather <gasps> and you have a, uh... a razor blade that's a fold out razor blade and you would sharpen that blade on the strop. And they do that just before, as it were, scraping the back of your neck and taking off all those little hairs. So that's what a, a, a strop is. Yes. But where does the term strop?
1: Well, that come strop, from? I'm just checking that that strop has nothing to do with stroppy. I don't think it does. So, yes, you're right. A device typically a strip of leather for sharpening razors. And that goes back to a Germanic adoption of the Latin stroppus, which meant thong. And I can confirm that although if you're stroppy, you might want to go around thonging people. It actually is probably a formation from, back formation from obstreperous. And if you are obstreperous, you are basically bad tempered, aren't you? And irritable, uh, etc. And that goes back in turn to ob meaning against and strepare to make a noise.
0: So throwing a strop is from obstreperous, being yes. obstreperous, nothing to do with the strop no. that you use when you've got a stropping razor.
1: I don't think so. And obstreperous is also being quite noisy, isn't it? I think if you're stroppy, you're, you can make a noise.
0: Next letter, Susie. Who's, who okay, so
1: this is from Louise Kieft hoping I pronounced that properly. She has a word which she uses all the time. Um, She grew up in East Anglia, South Lincolnshire, North Cambridgeshire, she says, and she wonders if it's specific to that small area. She now lives near me in South Oxfordshire. And Louise's word is jiffle, meaning to fidget and not sit or lie still. So she says as a child, she was told to stop jiffling or was even called a jiffle bum. Now, I hadn't heard this at all, Had you, Giles?
0: Nope, never no heard it. never heard
1: it. I've not heard it either. But I have to say I had quite a nice time looking around for it. It no one knows I'm afraid Louise where jiffle comes from. It is a dialect word as you would guess and um, you will find it in dialect dictionaries. But what it did make me come across with some other lovely dialect words. It's actually mentioned as a Norfolk word, so maybe it goes a little bit further than um, where Louise grew up. But there's lovely words in there like lollop, which is to walk about in a kind of slightly ungainly way, a lolloping person, and also lummox, a clumsy person. I love that. So, yes, it's a great word to jiffle, but unfortunately no one quite knows, as is the case with so many dialect words, where it comes from.
0: We don't know about jiffle and we don't know about dog, and there was one other you mentioned the other day, we don't know the origin of.
1: Oh, there's so many we don't know the origin of. Boffin is another one that I'd love to get to the oh, bottom of. If
0: oh, you, if you know the true source <laughs> of the word boffin, do please get in touch with us. This is our 80th episode. Myriad words we have mm. discussed across these last 80 episodes. And the word myriad is one Emma Robertson wants to know more about. Mm. Could you please explain it? It means, she believes, 10,000. It does. Absolutely Are right. there other words like that?
1: Well, yes, it does. It comes from the Greek myrioi, which was 10,000 exactly. But because it then became a large number, it was extended in kind of figurative use. And myriad is an interesting one because technically speaking, if you say a myriad of, which is very tempting, because it makes sense to say a myriad of letters appeared, it's wrong because myriad already contains that idea of of. So you would say a myriad letters, not a myriad of letters. If that intriguing. Makes
0: sense. That's the joy. We learned so much from you. Thank you for being in touch with us, Emma. Emma has been in touch with us from New Zealand. I love the global reach of Something Rhymes with Purple. It makes me proud and moved at the same time. Do please communicate with us. Email purple at something dot com, something without a G. We always have three special words from you, mm. Susie Dent. Have you got three interesting words for us this week? Maybe from your word perfect book?
1: Well, yes, this one is all to do with biscuits, really. But it's just quite interesting, the whole vocabulary that was around tea drinking. And, and maybe we should do a special episode on tea and coffee, because oh, I'd love that. the associations of drinking tea, particularly when it comes to females and the gossip that goes with it, has been very interesting and quite sexist in the past, I have to say. Whether or not this is sexist or whether it was uh, created by women, I don't know. But you know, when you're pouring from the teapot, you might say, who's playing mother? Who's mother? Well, bitching the pot was one other term for who is pouring the tea. Who's bitching the pot? Because it's usually women. So Gosh. my turn to bitch the pot. I think women can reclaim this and say it's my turn to pour the tea and get the biscuits out. So that's the first one. The bitching second the is, pot, I, it. I had borborygmus at the start of this, but actually I've also been accused of this too, which is gwicking. To gwick is to make a large, loud swallowing noise. And I can't swallow a cup of tea without actually making a loud swallowing noise. Something I find that so irritating. Anatomy. I'm really sorry. I'm, really I'm, find trying that really hard. I'm going to try really hard now. Did you hear that?
0: No, I didn't oh, good, hear that. Good,
1: good, good. All right. Well, well I'm perfect That's probably the quality
0: of the sound. Gully's in charge. Today. And you've
1: got the rain behind me. Anyway, so what was that word? What that's was the word you Gwicking. So G W I C K.
0: G-W-I-C-K. And a third one?
1: The third one, well, as you know, I had a bit of an omni-shambles recently, which is a Ah. great word invented for the TV satirical comedy called The Thick of It. So there's another word associated with this, which I love. It's very transparent and very obvious, but I think it's something we all feel at the moment. And that's omni-strain. And omni-strain is the stress of trying to cope with everything in life.
0: Well, one of the best ways, I think, of coping with the stresses of life is to pull down an anthology of poetry, open it at random, and read a poem. And the great thing about poetry, and T.S. Eliot says this, so it must be right, Mm. you don't need to understand it. You don't have to understand it. You don't need to understand all the words. It is, in a way, like music using language. And I have put together an anthology of poems, my favorite poems, called Dancing by the Light of the Moon. And these are particularly poems to learn by heart. And there, in it, there are lots of old favorites and some surprises too. And I pulled it down today because recently we lost a wonderful poet, an Irishman called Derek Marne. Um. And he was born in 1940, 41, and he died the other day in in Ireland. And he was a man who had a wonderful way with words and a very big heart. And I'd like to read one of his poems. It's the last poem in my anthology. It's called Everything is Going to Be All Right. It's really very much a poem for our times. How should I not be glad to contemplate the clouds clearing beyond the dormer window? and a high tide reflected on the ceiling. There will be dying, there will be dying, but there is no need to go into that. The poems flow from the hand unbidden, and the hidden source is the watchful heart. The sun rises in spite of everything, and the far cities are beautiful and bright. I lie here in a riot of sunlight, watching the day break and the clouds flying. Everything is going to be all right oh,
1: that's beautiful I have to say when things get really dark for me a massively effective antidote is to go and look at the sea so yes it's that kind of similar thing everything will be all right because we are just specks aren't we specks in the ocean well on that note um, thank you for that jazz that was beautiful Something Rhymes with Purple is a something else production it was produced by Lawrence Bassett um, with additional production from Steve Ackerman Grace Laker and with a mouthful Full of Jaffa cakes. Gully. Yeah, he's been bitching the pot. <laughs>